Hi, this is Amy Peral with the PolyBio Podcast. And my guest today is Kevin Tracy. He's president and CEO of the Karchus Family Distinguished Chair in Medical Research at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. And he's a professor of molecular medicine and neurosurgery at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell and executive vice president of research at Northwell Health. He's a leader in the scientific field of inflammation and bioelectronic medicine, and his contributions include discovery and molecular mapping of neurocircuits controlling immunity, and he's also very well known for describing the vagus nerve anti-inflammatory reflex, and he knows quite a bit about the vagus nerve generally. With that, welcome, Kevin. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining. So, Kevin... I mentioned the vagus nerve, which in a sense is practically synonymous with your name at this point. Can you tell me more about the vagus nerve? Just tell me about this nerve. The, the vagus nerve is a information superhighway that, that connects the brain to the organs uh, that you never think about. So the brain is, is constantly monitoring how your organs are working, your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, all of them. And this information is, is, is passing back and forth through the vagus nerve. There's actually, there's actually two of them. They, they, it's called the vagus nerve, but there's, it's a paired nerve, means that there's one on each side of your body. Got it. Okay. And so if the vagus nerve, it's, if it senses, it goes in two directions, right? The main signaling. So you have the signaling from the body to the brain and from the brain to the body. Could you go a little bit more into how that works? Absolutely. So the, 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 it, it's a, it's, as you said, it's a bi-directional nerve. It's carrying information in both directions. So, so how does that work? Well, we call it a nerve. It's called a nerve anatomically, but it's more precisely, it's, it's more like 80,000 individual nerves bundled together in, in, a, in, a, in, in these two paired structures. So if you were to look at, at the transatlantic cable connecting Europe to uh, uh, the United States, there, there's one cable, but bundled inside that cable are, are thousands and thousands of individual wires that carry the information from the United States to Europe, the internet and the telephone and whatnot, and then also carry information back in the other direction. So that, that's a good model to understand how the vagus nerve is organized. The signals, the signals from, the, from the body are the first step. So heart rate changes, it increases or decreases when you go for a run or take a nap. That, that increase or decrease in the heart rate is transmitted as a signal that goes up the vagus nerve from the heart to the brain. Inside the brain, that signal is processed. Like in your house, you have a router for your internet. That, that router is processing the signals. In the brain, the signals are processed and then it, it, the signals are sent back down the vagus nerve to the heart to slow the heart down typically. Got it. So it's this very important communication network between the body and the brain, which in a sense helps to explain a lot of how what happens in the body is recognized by the central nervous system and how there's coordination between those areas, correct? 100% correct. So when an organ is functioning, whether it's the heart that's beating or the, the, the kidneys making urine or the, the pancreas making insulin uh, to lower glucose, all of these processes cause chemical changes in the body that, that activate 
signals in the vagus nerve and in other nerves, but we're talking about the vagus nerve now. So these signals that travel from the body up into the brain are the, are the first step in activating reflexes, uh, which control the organs and how they function. So, so if you remember the last time that the, you were in, in the doctor's office and she examined the reflexes in your leg, uh, the doctor may have tapped your knee with a rubber hammer. That, that tapping of the knee, the, the tendon below the knee actually stretches that tendon with the rubber hammer hitting, stretches the tendon. That sends a signal in the reflex that goes up into the spinal cord. That's the sensory arc of the reflex. And then the spinal cord and or brain sends signals back down to the, to the muscles of your thigh, which cause your your leg to, to scooch up. Now that, that's, a, that's a very simple motor reflex, but those kinds of reflexes are happening in your organs all day long, hour to hour, minute to minute. And you're not aware of them. Um, you're not aware of your brain increasing or decreasing your heart because it's happening as a re reflex. You're not aware of the signals in your vagus nerve that are increasing or decreasing how much insulin is being released by your pancreas, but it is being reflexively controlled. These vagus nerve signals reflexively control how your body works. Wow. Yes. Very important nerve then, I would say. Definitely. Yes. So if you cut the vagus nerve, what happens? Can a person even live? If you, if you cut both vagus nerves, um, it, it, it can cause serious complications. It can, it can influence your ability to speak clearly because some of the fibers from the vagus nerve uh, innervate your voice box. It can, it can affect the ability of your, of your heart rate to be, to be controlled uh, precisely. Uh, so it's, it's a very important nerve and, and uh, it, it, it would be hard to cut both of them without causing other serious damage. So. So the vagus nerve travels along the carotid artery and it's close to the jugular vein. So, so accidents or trauma that would, that, would, that would lead to cutting both vagus nerves would typically not be survivable. Uh, that being said, um, the, the vagus nerve is, is carefully um, bundled up inside the carotid sheath where, where you can feel the pulse on your neck. The vagus nerve is deep behind where you feel the pulse on your neck. Interesting. Okay, and then that brings me to the question, in a range of chronic conditions then, we obviously know that because the vagus nerve is innervating the body and plays such an important role in connecting all this signaling, that perhaps in a number of chronic inflammatory disease states, it may, it may not be functioning correctly. Is that something that would be the case? So yes, we've been become very interested in understanding how the vagus nerve functions because some years ago, my colleagues and I in the laboratory discovered that some of the signals in the vagus nerve are controlling how the, uh, the immune system responds to uh, infection or injury. So, so what happens during an infection or an injury, the immune system is, the, is on the front line. So if there's a, if there's a cut or a or a puncture wound and bacteria gain access to, um, to your body, the, the, the white blood cells and the other cells on the front line of, of where the bacteria are coming in, they're part of what's called the innate immune system. And, and the innate immune system 
sees the the bacterial uh, the bacteria the microbes or the viruses coming in and and these cells become activated they become they become switched on to fight back and and that's a good thing it's a very important defense mechanism that that mo most of the time when bacteria or viruses come into the body the immune system uh, walls them off or kills them and 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 you go on your merry way um, but the but sometimes, sometimes the, the bacteria or the um, uh, microbes gain a foothold. And now the, that the innate immune cells, the macrophages and the neutrophils and the monocytes, these cells now start producing molecules to fight back. And you can have a, a small, you can have a small battle turn into a, a full-scale war at that point because the molecules made by the innate immune system are very, very powerful. In fact, they're so powerful, these molecules can actually cause damage to normal tissues. They're not selective or specific just to the microbes. And in that case, you need to have mechanisms in place to, to prevent these molecules, these damaging molecules from causing harm to normal organs. And what my colleagues and I discovered is that vagus nerve signals have a very important role in turning off the production of these dangerous molecules. And by turning off the production of these dangerous molecules, vagus nerve signals can quiet inflammation and, and stop the damage. So that, that's been, that's been the, our, the main area of work that we've now been focused on for the last 20 years. Yes, that was a very, it is a very important finding. To summarize what you're saying is that someone can have an infection in many body sites, any site that the vagus nerve innervates. And then if that infection isn't well addressed, the immune system, there'll be a perpetual sort of what you said, innate immune response with immune cells that continue to respond to the infectious agent. And the vagus nerve will sense that and convey that signal up into the brain. And then what you discovered is that if the vagus nerve is signaling correctly, it should send back an anti-inflammatory signal to calm that inflammation down and in a sense, help the system manage that, right? Correct. Is that accurate? Okay. 100% accurate. So what's amazing when we, when we watch this in real time, uh, we, we, can, we, can use a, we can use electrical signals applied to the vagus nerve. Very, very small amounts of electricity can activate these signals in the nerve. And the, the nerve, this, by stimulating the nerve with, with, with um, small computer chips or small electrodes, by stimulating the nerve to have an electrical activity, the, the nerve travels down to the spleen and other organs where the electrical activity is converted into chemical activity. So the nerve endings release chemicals such as acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and these molecules now inside the spleen activate the, the, the cells so that they now are prevented from making these damaging molecules. These damaging molecules uh, were, have been talked about a lot during COVID because these damaging molecules are called cytokines. And the overproduction of cytokines called cytokine storm uh, is thought to be, a, in some patients, one of the reasons why patients got so sick from COVID-19. So, so understanding how the electrical signals in the vagus nerve get converted to chemical signals in the spleen and other organs was an important clue to understanding how the brain can turn off the innate immune system and prevent inflammation. 
Yes, that is very interesting. Now with COVID, do you think then that there may, the vagus nerve may be in a sense dysregulated or impacted in COVID? Um, and do you think that that's possible? I do know that some people, um, we know that the vagus nerve does control via the brainstem some respiratory centers, correct? That are um, important in helping people uh, breathe correctly. Do you think, and then of course, like you mentioned, there's the cytokine storm syndrome that can occur if patients get very ill. Do you think that that process, um, how do you think that's playing out in COVID? So all of those, um, all of those areas are important questions that are being studied by a number of, uh, a number of groups and laboratories around the world. And we can just we can talk about what's known. There's a lot that's unknown still because because we're still relatively new and understanding this virus. As much as we know about this virus, it still hasn't had its third birthday yet, and uh, we're still literally just getting our arms around some of these complex pathophysiological questions and mechanisms. But there's some very interesting observations that that have 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 raised the vagus nerve. As an, as an important target to understanding how the virus um, can, can make people sick. So as you said correctly a minute ago, one, one area is the vagus nerve is very important in controlling breathing. So signals traveling up and down the vagus nerve are very important in uh, synchronizing, if you will, the activity uh, in the lungs, the blood oxygen and blood carbon dioxide levels in, in your blood, of course, and the brain signals and the brain centers that control respiration, how fast you breathe, how, how long you inspire, how long you exhale, how long uh, the, breath, the breath holding or the pauses in between breaths is. All of this is, is neurologically mediated uh, through the vagus nerve in part and other nerves also, but it's all reflexively controlled. So to the extent that, that the vagus nerve is damaged during COVID or after COVID, that, that could have significant implications on, on breathing. And there is now new evidence uh, from, from ultrasound studies looking at the vagus nerve in COVID patients. And it appears that the vagus nerve in some patients, a lot of them potentially, um, has either scarring or evidence of inflammation or evidence of damage. So the concern is if there's, if there's damage or inflammation or scarring in the vagus nerve, does this contribute to the ability to have proper breathing and breath control and cardiovascular reflexes such as control of heart rate and blood pressure? That's an open question. It's not decided yet. But when you ask that question, based on what we were just talking about, you can now ask another important question, which is if the vagus nerve is an important regulator uh, or important information highway that is reflexively controlling the innate immune system, might damage to the vagus nerve cause damage to that control system? And that is something that, that I'm, I'm very um, concerned about and interested in because one way to think about the, the vagus nerve reflex control of innate immunity is that the, the vagus nerve are like the brakes on your car. And if, and if the innate immune system is, is, getting, is, is getting more and more activated to make cytokines, even though the cytokines are damaging, 
that's not a good time for the brakes on your car to fail. You want your brakes to be working well when you're going down a mountain. And, and in this case, the question on the table, and it's, it's not known, it's not, the answer is not known for COVID, but the question on the table is, does vagus nerve damage in COVID cause decreased functioning of the brakes to the innate immune system? And is it one mechanism that unleashes the production of cytokines to the extent that now the cytokines can actually cause more, more harm than good? That's an unknown question. Kevin, that is an important question because yes, we, we are trying to figure out why in patients the inflammation with the cytokines can get so bad. And like you say, the vagus nerve signaling from the brain to the body when you sense inflammation is supposed to tamp that down. So if it isn't getting tamped down as much, that could be, that's a really interesting topic of investigation. Do you think, you know, oh, go ahead. I, I agree. It's very, very interesting. It's interesting in the context of, of acute cytokine storm, uh, where you can have this unleashing of cytokines and, and have this catastrophic problems of, of falling blood pressure and, and congested lungs. But it's also interesting in, in another scope, which is potentially relevant to, and we don't know, it's being studied, we're not sure, but relevant to long, to long COVID or to long haul syndrome. And in that case, um, if, the, if the chronic production of cytokines is now uncontrolled, cytokines chronically produced in the body can cause problems with sleep disorder, with appetite, with learning and memory, with brain fog. And so it, it's, it's a, it, it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of scientific questions there about the role of chronic inflammation or chronic cytokine production in the body as a source of the signs and symptoms of long COVID that can appear in the brain. Absolutely. The potential to explore vagus nerve activity in long COVID is it's huge. It's incredibly important. You know, one German autopsy study found in acute COVID that they actually found virus. Um, I think it was the protein from SARS-CoV-2, uh, one of them in the vagus nerve itself and in also in the medulla oblongata of the brainstem, I believe. So do you think then that the vagus nerve could become directly infected? Do we think that that is part of how things could go wrong, at least in some patients? That hypothesis has been proposed and it is a reasonable uh, question to be studied further, but yes, there is evidence that virus can be found in some patients in the vagus nerve and in other nerves of the brain and of the body. I, I think what we don't know yet is chicken and egg. We don't know whether the, the disease occurs first and then the virus um, attacks these tissues secondarily, or whether in some patients, the damage that the virus causes to the nerves actually makes the disease worse because like we've been talking about, uh, because of loss of control of protective reflex mechanisms and it's not just the inflammatory reflex to the innate immune system. It might be re protective reflexes that normally control heart rate. There is evidence of autonomic dysfunction in, in COVID. And so what is autonomic? So, so the part of the nervous system that you're not aware of uh, is, is, it includes the vagus nerve that we've been talking about. And it includes 
also an, another group of nerves called the, the sympathetic nerve. So the vagus nerve is parasympathetic. The, 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 uh, and, and, and the, the other family of nerves in the autonomic nervous system is called sympathetic. And they've been, they've been broadly grouped into the, the flight or fight nerves, which is sympathetic, and the rest and digest nerves, which is parasympathetic. And sometimes that that organization is a bit oversimplified, but it's commonly used. There's, when, when, when you go for a run, you need to accelerate heart rate to deliver more blood to the muscles and brain and other organs. And that's, that's primarily mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. And then after your run, when you, when you lie down later in the day and take a nap or, or, or go to bed that night, the slowing down process is primarily mediated by the vagus nerve. Again, that's an oversimplification because these things are happening in all of us every minute. And there's a constant push and pull between the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. And that produces a fine balance. The, the autonomic nervous system is the, produces the fine balance you need so that you don't notice deviations in any of your organs on a normal, typical day. Um, another way to think about it is in a hermetically sealed skyscraper. The air conditioners and the heaters run all year round. So in the summertime, you don't turn off the heat, the heaters of, a, of these big buildings. The, he, the heaters are still on. So it's the pushing and pulling of the air conditioner and the heater in these, in these, in these buildings that keeps the temperature from having wide fluctuations. And, and that's how your body controls heart rate and, and respirations. There's evidence in, in, in COVID that, there, that, that patients who have autonomic dysfunction start to develop wide, wide deviations or swings in their heart rate or their blood pressure or other, other parameters. And this can, be, this can be disabling and it can be fatiguing and can be very, very difficult. So the question is, if there's evidence that the virus can affect the vagus nerve or other nerves. And if there's evidence that the vagus nerve and the sympathetic nerves have to be in fine balance or you have autonomic dysfunction, it's not a leap of faith to say we should be doing more work understanding damage to the vagus nerve in long COVID and in the autonomic dysfunction of COVID. Undoubtedly. And there's also a condition I know you're familiar with called myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome or MECFS that's very similar to long COVID and that most cases are initiated or exacerbated by infection and then patients go on to develop core sets of symptoms that include autonomic dysfunction and inability to recover from exercise. And in, in simple terms, patients absolutely struggle with sympathetic and parasympathetic tone. And there's some studies that document this, but it's also been documented many, many times over anecdotally in which patients, they wake up and it feels like their, their body is firing when it shouldn't be at night, when they should be more relaxed and there should be more parasympathetic tone, they feel wired. It's that, that all seems skewed in these patients um, who have a very similar presentation to long COVID. So it does scream, does start to scream something is wrong with the vagus nerve, um, if you ask me. Yes, I agree. There is uh, some evidence from clinical trials of that condition that stimulating the, the vagus nerve can confer some benefit. Uh, the, I, I, I think these results are extremely interesting. Uh, the question on the table is, can, can, you, can you, if there's a, there's a missing signal in the vagus nerve, uh, 
can you can you reactivate or restore that signal using devices that are either surgically implanted uh, or devices that don't require surgery that can stimulate the vagus nerve through the skin? And the question is, does this repair the brake line? Does this does this restore enough uh, signaling in the vagus nerve so you get that balance back on the autonomic system? And or does it restore enough signaling in the vagus nerve so you can now have a system that turns off inflammation that may or may not be contributing to these conditions? Yes, exactly. So vagus nerve stimulation then. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that works, how you do vagus nerve stimulation, and also if there are certain devices that you think are better than others for doing that? Vagus nerve stimulation has been used for more than 30 years in more than 100,000 patients with, uh, with epilepsy, with seizure disorders. And this is a condition in which um, uh, vagus nerve stimulation would be would be implanted surgically by neurosurgeons uh, with, by putting a cuff on the vagus nerve in the neck, usually on the left side, and then connecting that cuff electrode to a pacemaker-like device that's implanted under the collarbone. And th this experience with vagus nerve stimulation has taught us that it can be safely done. Complications rates are on the order of one to 2%. Uh, typically, uh, the most serious complications involve either um, infection from, from the surgery or uh, damage to the wound. These are, these are uh, damage to the nerve, sorry. Uh, these things, th this experience allows us to, to think that vagus nerve stimulation in experienced hand can be, can be very safely done. Uh, the, the question on the table now is, can this experience with vagus nerve stimulation in which the, the patients being treated had epilepsy, can that now be applied to patients with other conditions caused by inflammation? And right now, as we speak, there are numerous clinical trials in progress looking at either stimulating the vagus nerve with a surgically implanted device to treat rheumatoid arthritis. That's being done in the United States now uh, by a patient that I co-founded called Setpoint Medical. There are, there are other trials looking at stimulating the vagus nerve in the liver using ultrasound. Uh, and this is for patients with diabetes. There are other trials stimulating the, the vagus nerve to minimize the, the symptoms of, of opioid withdrawal and migraine headache. And this can be done by electrically stimulating a branch of the vagus nerve in the external ear. So there are, uh, last time I looked, dozens and dozens of clinical trials to stimulate the vagus nerve in humans to try to understand better it, its effects in, uh, in, in treating a number of different conditions, many of them inflammatory conditions. Yes, that's great to hear. And it definitely seems like a vagus nerve stimulation trial, clinical trial in long COVID would make sense. Yes, I think it's it's time to it's time to talk about that. There is um, there's no um, gold standard device yet. There are several FDA approved devices in the United States and several European FDA approved devices uh, for various conditions ranging from epilepsy, seizure disorder, as we said, to depression, to opioid withdrawal, to a headache. Um, these these devices. Um, all have different features, and there's 
it's not known which settings on which device would be optimal to treat a condition such as long COVID. It's, it's not even known um, if, uh, if that would be effective. However, the only way to find out the answer to some of these questions is to, is to actually do the clinical trials. Um, we, we are early in this. My estimate is that um, several thousand patients worldwide have been treated for um, some inflammatory condition or other using vagus nerve stimulation. It sounds like a lot of people on one hand. On the other hand, these are the early years of the clinical work, and there's, there's a lot more to do. We know a tremendous amount in the laboratory and in laboratory models of disease about how this works, but now we're in the process of translating that knowledge into human clinical trials. Got it. Yes, that makes sense. And that is a pressing question, which is how do you study and try to understand that vagus nerve signaling is dysregulated in a living person? I think that's a question that I struggle with because with a lot of the research we're doing, um, we're also doing research on long COVID and MECFS, we have that same issue where we need to understand if a pathogen, including the SARS-CoV-2 virus, may still be uh, present in someone's brain or in, in, in a tissue that you cannot easily sample. So you can use mouse models to try to understand what might be going on. You can do some autopsy work. Um, what other ideas do you have for just trying to understand how vagus nerve uh, signaling may be disrupted in, in living patients? Is, any thoughts? So there's been, there's been a lot written and talked about the studying the activity of the vagus nerve in, uh, in humans. And, and, and the, 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 probably what's done most commonly is to um, measure surrogates of vagus nerve activity that are, that are believed to be downstream. So for instance, we've talked a lot about heart rate. And when, you can think of it this way, when, when the vagus nerve fires to the heart, when it sends electrical signals to the heart uh, to slow the heart down, it prolongs the time to the next heartbeat. So um, this produces variability in the, what's called the instantaneous heart rate, which is the measuring the time between individual heartbeats. The more the vagus nerve fires, the more variability there is between individual, the time between individual heartbeats. And so that's, that's used as a, as a measure of vagus nerve activity. And it's, and it's useful in, in, in understanding um, um, some physiological uh, knowledge about the vagus nerve in humans. But it's, it's limited in another way. And there's a tendency and uh, by, by, there's a tendency by some to, in talking about this or thinking about it to oversimplify and to treat the vagus nerve as a solid copper wire. And, and it's not, we've talked about this in the beginning, it's more like 80,000 individual wires. And it's, it's possible that, that, by, that by understanding the signals to the heart, you can learn a great deal about the signals to the heart, but there's no evidence that those same signals in the fibers going fibers or wires or nerves to the heart would be doing the same thing or, or signaling the same way as the, the fibers or the wires that go to the spleen or the nerves that go to the spleen. So you could have a case where 
where you're measuring vagus nerve activity to the heart, but the opposite thing or a different thing could be happening in the spleen. And you know, there, there's an idea, there's an idea that when the vagus nerve is functioning, the entire vagus nerve is functioning, but that that's not how the nervous system works. You can play piano and chew gum at the same time. You can walk and talk. When when nerves fire, they fire to do the the evolutionarily constrained activity that those nerves evolved to do. And the, the nerves to the heart may be very different than the nerves to the spleen, even though they're both in, quote unquote, in the vagus nerve. So, so it's very difficult to, to study in real time the vagus nerve signals in humans. But another good way to do it is to actually do functional brain imaging uh, while, while, while causing changes in vagus nerve function, either with with electrically stimulating the vagus nerve uh, through the ear, for instance, or using ultrasound. And in those kinds of studies, it's fascinating because you can look in almost in real time uh, with uh, fMRI or, or other uh, brain imaging methods. You can, you can look at the brain regions that the vagus nerve is signaling to and they align nicely with what we know about how the brain controls the vagus nerve uh, in animal models in which you can do a lot more precise measurements. Yes, absolutely. I do think the the opportunity to image people in a scanner, as you mentioned, while vagus nerve stimulation or the vagus nerve is being modulated is, is a really interesting area of exploration. And Mike Van Elzeker, who you know uh, that I work with, they're starting a study in the seven Tesla scanner where they do a vagus nerve stimulation challenge in the scanner um, for ME-CFS and long COVID patients with structural issues. And it's really interesting. I actually went and watched one of the scans and I thought it was fascinating to see the vagus nerve um, signaling occurring while they, they made a special vagus nerve um, stimulation device that, that has no metal in it that could be put in the scanner with the patient. It was cool. So there, I do see some, some opportunity there. Um, interesting. Then, you know, going back, because I can't help it as I'm a microbiologist, when you mention all these different you know, this is the whole thing. When I first heard vagus nerve 10 years ago, I pictured it as one big solid nerve, exactly as you describe. And then more and more, I've been understanding what you're saying about all these different internal, in a sense, in simple terms, little cables that are part of the nerve. Um, when there are so many neurotrophic pathogens in humans, and by neurotrophic, what I mean is pathogens that preferentially infect nerve, it just seems like such an untapped area to explore. For example, the herpes viruses are neurotrophic, right? They, they require movement through nerves as part of their life cycles. And we know that so many people harbor these viruses. Um, in fact, men, most of the population harbors herpes viruses. So I wonder if in different conditions, there may be somewhat different infection of the nerve, depending on what area of the nerve is infected, what part of the nerve is infected. Um, I know that might be sort of a new topic on your radar, but it interests me, especially because of the differences in, in what parts or uh, components of the nerve could be infected. Yeah, it's it's a very important area. And again, this is an area a lot of people are working on. And probably most uh, uh, most celebrated in this uh, recently has been in Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. where there is a large body of evidence now that suggests something, maybe an infection, maybe a virus, it's not known, maybe a, maybe a chemical um, uh, or, or another molecule. Um, but something's happening in, the, in it happens in the gut before Parkinson's in the brain becomes 
uh, manifest or disabling. And what's happening in the gut, whatever it is, whether it's a microbe, a virus, or a molecule of some kind, appears to travel up the vagus nerve to gain access into the brain. And only then does the brain damage uh, in the substantia nigra and the other dopaminergic centers of the brain really start to, to happen. And so there's an interesting uh, example that's under, it's, a, it's an area being actively studied by many laboratories of what, what is happening in the body that then travels up the vagus nerve to gain access to the brain to actually cause Parkinson's disease. Uh, and, and so, if, and if it's true, Parkinson's disease, of course, is a type of neurodegeneration, meaning the, the nerves, nerves start to die and drop out it, and that's the problem in the disease. Other neurodegenerative disease are, include Alzheimer's disease, Lewy body dementia, and, and the question is, is this a model uh, or an example, or is this how some of these other diseases get started as well? There are some people that think that might be true and are studying that. I couldn't agree more because we, as humans, can get infected in the gut much more easily. That's where we consume food that could have pathogens or other, you know, things that other things that we eat or water that could be infected. So that's an easy area of the body that can become more easily infected. And then you have this nerve that innervates the gut and then connects to the brainstem. And so the, the, the possibility that no pathogen would have evolved to sort of use the vagus nerve in simple terms as a highway to be able to get into the central nervous system seems unlikely. It's just such a, a logical route to somewhat hijack is what pathogens always do is they'll hijack uh, human function or human signaling or human, uh, you know, pathways for their own benefit. It seems very logical. And there was one team, I think it's a Japanese study that I find fascinating, where they looked at mice infected with the influenza virus, and they were able to show that the influenza virus, even when the infection was in the lung, seemed to travel the vagus nerve from the lung to the brainstem in mice again, but it's still just really interesting there. So that's a, a cool area of research that I hope um, can keep working on. So yeah. Cool. Well, before I let you go, Kevin, can you tell me how you got interested in studying the vagus nerve in the first place? The years ago in the, in the 1990s, we were working on a molecule that we had developed or invented to, to turn off inflammation. And, it, and it, was a, it was a molecule that was quite effective as an, anti, an experimental uh, anti-inflammatory drug. And and we used this, we used this, it was called 1493. And, and we used this molecule in, in, in lots of different laboratory models of inflammation. It was very effective. We even did some clinical trials in humans with inflammatory bowel disease, and it, and it seemed to be quite effective. But along, along, along the lines of doing this work on 1493, one day we, we, we made this really surprising uh, an unexpected discovery in the laboratory. And that is that the, the 1493 uh, was being used in animals with a stroke, with a, with a brain infarction, a brain attack. And so when we put the molecule into the brains of, of mice and rats that had a stroke, it blocked the inflammation in the brain, which is what we had expected. And that, that seemed to make the stroke somewhat better. But what we didn't expect is that putting 1493 in the, in, the, in the brain of these mice and rats also turned off the inflammation in the organs in the body of the animals, in the spleen and in the liver and in the, in the lungs. 
And this didn't make any sense because uh, we had, hadn't put enough molecule in the brain to have it go throughout the whole body. And so eventually, after many months and then years of work, we, we discovered that the, the molecule 1493 in the brain was turning on these electrical signals in the vagus nerve, which in turn would, was the reason that the inflammation was being blocked in the body. So it was a big accidental discovery that created a new field of work because once we knew that the 1493 in the brain was activating electrical signals in the vagus nerve, we could shift to developing computer chips and electrodes to target the vagus nerve directly without having to use drugs anymore. So now we're basically in the business of using electrons and computers to control nerve networks that we believe will replace anti-inflammatory drugs for some patients in the near future. Wow. It's incredible. That was a good, it was a fortuitous discovery. And I think, you know, when I remember first coming across your work, it was also in relation to, there was some work with bariatric surgery, I believe, where patients with bariatric surgery had had vagus nerve cut. Um, and then you were looking at some di signaling differences there. So the, what, what's known now is that the uh, cutting of the vagus nerve uh, in animal models anyways, we of course haven't done that in, in people in any sort of, uh, in any, in any sort of uh, experiment, but in, in laboratory models of inflammation, cutting the vagus nerve makes the inflammation much, much worse. And this is true for um, pretty much any inflammatory condition that's been studied in the laboratory. So what does that mean? That means the vagus nerve is, is, actually, is acting like the brakes on your car, and, and it's, a, it, it's, it's operating sort of all the time in the background to reduce the amount of inflammation. And if for some reason uh, inflammation does take root, as occurs in inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis, if inflammation takes root in those, in those places and the vagus nerve is not functioning well, then the inflammation gets much, much worse. And so now the question in, in COVID and in long COVID is, is that what we're dealing with, where there's, a, there's inflammation has taken root after the virus, and, and because the virus damaged the vagus nerve, now you're getting worsening or uncontrolled inflammation instead of, uh, instead of beneficial and resolving inflammation. That's, that's the area that's being studied now. Absolutely. Well, great. I am so glad that you are studying that and that there are other teams, including ours. Um, we think this is a central topic in long COVID. Um, so it's been great to connect with you on that. Well, Kevin, then hopefully I can check in with you, you know, coming up and see where things stand. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.